You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at crossvillerevolution.com. We are in the second week in a series on the book of Titus. If you're new to Rev Church, maybe joining us online, what we like to do here when we study the Bible together is go verse by verse uh, through books of the Bible. Uh, about 90 to 95% of the time uh, keeps us from abusing certain subjects that we would spend all of our time on in the flesh. And it forces us to deal with difficult passages of Scripture, as you're going to see today. I-, I would bet that majority of people in here have not heard a sermon on the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, I want to start today with a question, though. By show of hands, how many people in here have ever had a bad leader in your life? You've had a bad teacher, a bad coach, a bad boss that just drove you nuts. Okay. On the other side of that, the exact opposite of that, how many people in here have had a great leader in your life, a great teacher that inspired you, uh, a great coach that made you better and developed you, a boss that you absolutely loved to work for? Well, we know that leadership matters in every single facet of life. This is the reason why the President of the United States, that position is so coveted because we say it's the leader of the free world. I remember about two or three years ago, Elon Musk. Does everybody know who Elon Musk is? Okay, just bought Twitter. He's big in the news, right? I remember he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, Smoking Weed. And the day after he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, Smoking Weed, the Tesla stock dropped by over 50%. Why? Because there was people that didn't think the leader of that company should be participating in those things. Leadership matters. Steve Jobs, the day he died, um, he hadn't been really involved in the company much, but the day he died, Apple stock dropped significantly. Why? Because leadership matters. He started the company, he grew the company, and leadership matters. There's a TV show on TV that my wife and I used to watch all the time. We watched it all the time for about probably two or three years, and we don't watch a whole lot of TV anymore, so we hadn't watched it in a while. Uh, but maybe you've heard of it. It's called Shark Tank. Anybody ever heard of Shark Tank before? Well, if you've never watched Shark Tank, it's very interesting, and here's the idea behind it. You have these sharks, which are basically investors that are millionaires and billionaires, and they're listening to a pitch from someone that has started a business or come up with an invention and trying to convince the investor to give them money and help them build their business. Well, what you'll find if you just watch a couple of episodes of Shark Tank is those investors, those billionaires and millionaires that are incredible leaders, rarely do they care what the product is. Rarely do they care how the business is set up. What they care about and what you find is they're basically interviewing the leader of the business. They want to know, is the person that is pitching this to us a good leader and an effective leader? There has been sharks that have invested and investors on that show that have invested in some of the dumbest products ever, but they believe in the person as a leader. Conversely, there's, there's great products that people come up with, and you'll have all the sharks, sharks say, I'm out, I'm not giving you any money, and I'm not going into business with you because you are a mess, you're crazy. And essentially what they're saying is, you're not a good leader. Leadership matters. We have stuff we say on our staff that are just sayings about leadership, such as a fish rots from the head down, a speed of the leader, speed of the team. As the leader goes, so the organization goes. And we're going to see that today when we look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and we study the qualifications of 
pastors, elders, overseers, or bishops. We're going to start in verse 5 and stop it along the way and uh, take a look at this. Everybody with me say, I am. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing to Titus and he says this. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Stop right there. Titus is hanging out in an island called Crete. If I could show you a map of the biblical region at the time, you guys put that map up. What's going on in this instance and why Paul is writing this to Titus is essentially Paul had been hanging out on the mainlands right up here. Right up here is where Paul's been hanging out. And as a result of Paul's leadership, the churches on the mainlands are thriving. They're doing very well. Lots of people getting saved. Lots of movements of God's happening. But in Crete down here, this isolated island that if you read the Bible, you'll find it kind of had like its own culture. Kind of reminds me of Crossville. We're kind of this isolated mountain town that has its own culture different than the mainland, right? Down here in Crete, there was a crisis that was taking place. And, and Paul is writing to Titus to set in order those things which were unfinished because the church in Crete was struggling. The church in Crete was not fulfilling the purpose of the church. Last week, we established that the job description for a pastor is threefold. And as a result of the job description of a pastor, the purpose of a church is threefold. We want people to get saved. We want people to get discipled. And we want people to get ready to meet Jesus. Well, this is not happening on the island of Crete. When Paul says to Titus, I want you to put in order that which is left unfinished. A better way to translate that phrase, put in order, is set in order. It's the Greek word ortho, which may sound familiar to you. Uh, It describes the process of setting broken bones. It's where we get our words today for orthodontics and orthopedics. See, in the church in Crete, there were clear threats that were harming the church. You're going to see today that there were unqualified leaders. This is the reason Paul gives these these qualifications for leaders. There's false teaching that takes place. We're going to see that next week. And, And clearly throughout the rest of the book of Titus, there is ungodly behavior that is taking place at the churches in Crete. In other words, the churches in Crete were broken And don't miss this, the first step to fixing them was not pouring more money into them, was not coming up with a fancy vision statement, was not putting together an incredible worship team. It was appointing the proper leaders that were qualified to lead. Uh, How many uh, people in here love Target? Raise your hand if you love Target. How many husbands in here, maybe you have a female friend or a wife that loves Target? Anybody in here? Okay, some people are raising their hand. Uh, My wife and I, we love Target. She loves it more than I do. And we often said, man, if Crossville could just get a Target and a Chick-fil-A, we'd never have to leave. We're halfway there, y'all. Praise Jesus. Amen. We have Christian chicken in Crossville now. And we're going to be more blessed as a result. Save chicken. Amen. Well, my wife and I, we love to go to Target, and I used to love it a whole lot more than I do now. And we like to go to the Target at Turkey Creek in Knoxville, which is kind of on the outskirts on this side of Knoxville, and we would go all the time. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to get there. And my wife likes going there because she loves things like the dollar section, 
where she buys a bunch of crap that she doesn't need. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, but it's a dollar, so you got to have it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, why do we need 50 mini Christmas trees? I don't know. Why do we need five sets of dish towels? I don't know. Why do we need this stuff? Anyway, she loves uh, things like that. And I used to love going to Target because they had a food court. They had this little part in the front of Target where you could get, like, nachos for a dollar, a big thing of popcorn that will give you a heart attack, right, for, like, 50 cents, hot dogs for 50 cents. They had ices. And what I used to love to do was go to the food court and hang out in the food court and just eat and eat and eat while she was in Target messing around, and I loved it. But when COVID hit, Target did something. They reset the whole store. They got rid of the food court. They got rid of the deli, which is what we really liked about Target. We loved to buy stuff in the deli and stuff like that. And they changed everything around. And now we don't like to go to Target in Turkey Creek anymore. We don't like to go near as much. Because when we go in there, to us, it's chaotic. Stuff we used to know where something is, and now it's somewhere else, and we can't find it. Uh, man, I, I, I don't know where the food court is, and I don't want to pay for stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it's just totally different, and it seems chaotic, and everything is out of place. Well, when you have a church with bad leaders, it's chaotic. Everything is out of place. You can't find anything where it used to be. Nobody knows which way is left or right. Nobody knows which way is up or down. See, the church is supposed to be a place of peace where people can count on coming to a place where they can experience the the presence of God and people that love them. And the church isn't perfect. We're going to get into that today. But but the church is a place, as one pastor put it, it's a place that's supposed to have non-boring predictability. And the problem when you have bad leaders in a church is it's almost like the church is constantly resetting. Different vision every six months. Nobody knows where anything is. I can remember when we started Rev Church about 10 years ago. Every church plant that starts is usually pretty chaotic. But our church, especially uh, the way I remember it, is pretty disorderly in a lot of ways. Uh, But as the church started to mature, we got more orderly. We got more laser-focused. And the reason for that is we got more godly and qualified leaders in the places that they need to be. I still remember the day about five years ago, uh, we had had kind of a leadership vacuum at the church and finally straightened our bylaws out to where we were properly ran, an elder-led church like Scripture teaches. And uh, it was myself as an elder of the church and Dale Perrigan, Dr. Perrigan, was an elder of the church and we needed more. And I can remember I I, I called three guys that are current elders of the church now. I called uh, Jeff Randall, I called Walt Hitch, and I called Oliver Dosman. And I said, I had a meeting with them, and I said, hey, guys, we need elders for the church. We've went through the qualifications in Timothy and Titus. You guys are absolutely qualified, so you're elders of the church, and you can't say no. Like, you cannot say no. Like, you're going to be elders, and we're going to move forward. And ever since that day, we've had that plurality of leadership and several different qualified men making decisions together. Our church has gotten so much stronger, and we've reached so many more people. The two words that are used in the Greek here for the word elders, you may recognize uh, one of them. The first one is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian from. And translated, presbyteros actually literally means older man. Now, it doesn't necessarily speak to the age of the man, even though translated it says older man. We've got a young elder here at the church, Pastor Brandon. He's 28 years old. It speaks instead to the maturity of the person. 
this word that's used for elder highlights the person and their maturity. The other word that's used for elders in this passage is episkopos, which literally translates means overseer. Presbyteros stresses the person. Uh, the episkopos stresses the function of an elder. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 5, we kind of went through a flow chart with you guys. I would encourage you to go back and watch that sermon uh, because we did a whole thing on the screen and had a flow chart where we told you guys kind of like the flow chart of the church and how the church is set up as far as authority goes. And we kind of ran through, and you guys don't need to put these up. I'm just going to run through them real quick. But we talked about how Jesus is the head of the church. He's the highest in authority because he's Jesus. And then underneath him were elders of the church, pastors, overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call them, and there's different qualifications like the ones we're going over today. Underneath that were deacons of the church, and deacons, literally, the only function they have in the church is to meet the temporal and physical needs of the church. Uh, If you read it in scripture, they ran food pantries and different things like that. Well, underneath that, you've got leaders and teachers at Revolution Church. You've got uh, small group leaders and uh, different things like that that would fall under the category of leaders and teachers, and then you've got uh, partners and members. You know, at Revolution Church, we don't like to say the word membership because it makes you think that the church is like a country club. And for far too long, the church has functioned that way. Just pay your dues and you can be a part of the country club and you get your seat and you get your parking place. And we'll even put a plaque on whatever you buy in the church. We don't think of it that way. We think of it more as partnership because at Revolution Church, you're either in or you're out. Like either jump in, start serving, start giving, start being a part. Otherwise, you're not in, and that's okay because the last tier or flow chart is attenders that come to Rep Church and go to any church. And in attenders, you can do whatever you want. There's no standards. There's no accountability. If you just attend Revolution Church and you just come, uh, you can be shacked up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can get drunk on Saturday night. I remember when we first started the church, I used to tell people, we want Revolution Church to be the place where you can come, kind of like work off your hangover, so to speak, you know, and people would come on Sundays after going crazy. Those were just attenders. Does that make sense to everybody? And we told y'all back in the book of Acts, you should be seeking to try to get to the next level of involvement. If you're just an attender, you need to become a partner. If you're a partner, you need to be trying to become a leader. Well, what we're going to find today as we study this passage is, is that Jesus is at the top. And he's always solid, highest character, highest integrity. But right underneath Jesus, and don't think of it as like being on top. In just a minute, I'm going to like explain that to you, okay? It's not like, oh, we're over everybody. But underneath Jesus is the elders. And if there is a character leak or an integrity leak at the level of eldership, all of that sewage is going to run down over every other person in the church. On our staff, we have what's called the 10% rule for leaders. We talk about it all the time on the staff. And what we tell our staff is, you know, people are going to do about one-tenth of what you do right and 10 times what you do wrong. I tell my staff all the time, as a leader and as being over people, and this is why this is so important and there's not a leak of integrity and and, uh, character at the level of leadership, is the people underneath you, if you study your Bible for 60 minutes a day, you're going to be lucky if the people under you study it for six minutes a day. If you pray for an hour a day, you're going to be lucky if your people underneath you pray for six minutes a day. Dad and mom in here, if you pray for an hour a day, you're going to be lucky if your kids pray for six minutes a day. Conversely, whatever we do wrong, our people under us take that and do times 10. Let me give you an example. If I post something crazy online and crude, 
you guys will see that and you'll think, well, Pastor Josh posted something crazy, so I'm going to post something really, really crazy. So you have to think through these things when it comes to leadership and especially pastors and elders in a church. Today, as we go through this and we see these qualifications, we're going to answer the question, what makes a great leader, not just in a church, but in the home, uh, as a boss, as a teacher, or in any way? And what we're going to find is some surprising answers because the world defines good leaders in a completely different way than God does. And let's be honest, the church has really appointed leaders in this way. It's really been a popularity contest, especially the church in America. We want a leader to be somebody that's successful in business. They've got charisma. They've got powerful influence. If somebody's going to be a pastor, one of the qualifications is you've been to cemetery. I mean, seminary. Sorry about that. Seminary. And like you've got your dad was a preacher and you've got this background of being a Christian, well, you won't find any of those in here. This list that we're getting ready to go over has nothing to do with giftedness. Absolutely nothing. And it has everything to do with character. It's almost as if God look, is looking down and saying, hey, giving people spiritual gifts, that's easy. I'll let the Holy Spirit give people gifts as I want to. What really impresses me is someone through their own free will that follows my commands and does everything they can to have integrity and character and follow me. We're going to find that biblically leaders are different than the world. They're servant leaders with integrity and character and a love for Christ. Fifteen different terms we're going to go over. Some of them stand out more than others. We're going to try to get through them as quick as we can. But they fall into three different categories. How does a leader function at home? How does a leader function in public? And how does a leader function in the church? And by the way, it starts with the home, which is the most important. And the second most important is how a leader functions in public in front of others. And the last important thing is how they function at church. What am I saying? You can look good at church, act like you got it all together, but if you don't have your home together, if you don't have the way you act in public and interact in public together, it doesn't mean jack squat to God. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So let's take a look at these three different categories. Number one, the way he leads his home. Y'all still with me? Say I am. Verse six, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer manages God's household. Let's get this out of the way first. Let's get controversial. Half y'all ain't coming back next week because of what I'm getting ready to say. We believe at this church that Scripture is absolutely clear that leadership of a church, a pastor of a church, is a man. That there are different roles for men and women in the church just like there are different roles for men and women inside of marriage. Now, teaser, when we get done with the book of Titus, we're doing a two-week series starting Super Bowl weekend. We're going to call it Super Showdown, Husband versus Wife, where we're going to talk about uh, the role of a husband and the role of a wife inside marriage. My wife's going to help me with it, and it's going to be great. But there are different roles inside the church. If you disagree with that, we don't need to go have a fist fight in the parking lot. Don't send me 1,500 words in an email because you're not going to get a response, okay? I got better things to do with my time than argue with somebody about these secondary issues. But we believe that clearly it's a man. Now, I say that, and I want you to understand this. The list that we're going to go through is really a litmus test for the signs of spiritual maturity in anyone's life. 
Not just men, not just women, not, not just older men, young people, everybody in the church. All the attributes we're getting ready to read through and I'm getting ready to explain to you, think of them. How are you doing in these areas? Because this is the test that God is really giving us for signs of spiritual maturity. The first one he mentions is uh, a leader should be blameless. Another way to say that is above reproach. Another way to say it is without accusation. One translation says they're not marred by disgrace. We understand this term I'm getting ready to use because of what's taking place with the presidency. Another way to put it is someone is unimpeachable. Now, that doesn't mean that they're perfect or they have a perfect, sinless past. What it refers to is the general assessment of a man's maturity and reputation. This term, blameless, is going to be the framework for every other attribute we read after this. And the second one is a doozy. Y'all ready? Say amen. Amen. The second one that qualifies a person to be an elder, pastor, overseer is that he needs to be faithful to his wife. The King James Version says this, he's the husband of one wife. Literally translated, what this literally translated as is a one-woman man. Now, it speaks to four different areas. Number one, what this means clearly is that if a man's going to be the leader of a church, if a man's going to be a godly man, and this goes for women as well. Remember, this is the litmus test for maturity. uh, There's no promiscuity that takes place. I do believe that this also is speaking to polygamy, okay? Uh, in other words, a man doesn't have sister wives. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, it's that multiple wives, this is common practice at the time. There's no polygamy. Uh, he's not hooked on pornography, and he doesn't engage in fantasies about other women. Clearly speaks to those things, but it does go a little deeper. I like the way Chuck Swindoll says this. At the most basic level, this describes a man who is married to one woman and continues to live in fidelity and harmony with this woman. I had a buddy who was doing a funeral at a graveyard once, and he got done doing the funeral, and he noticed there was a guy that was on his knees over a grave hugging the headstone, and he kept yelling, Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? He said it was really loud, and being a pastor, he said, I wanted to minister to this guy, so I walked over to him, and I was like, sir, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Uh, Is this one of your children that you lost? No, it's not. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? Oh, well, I'm sorry. Is this a a spouse that you've lost? No, no, it's not. Why did he have to die? Why did he? Did you work with this person? Was it a friend? No, no, it wasn't a friend. I didn't work with him. Why did he have to die? Well, did you, did you know, like, do you, did you really love this person, whoever it is? No, I didn't love him. I never even met him. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? My buddy was totally confused. He looked at the guy and he said, can I just ask, who is this? Why are you so upset? He looked at my buddy and he said, this is my wife's first husband. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? Some of y'all are just getting it. Like, it took 10 or 15 seconds. Like, oh! That guy is not a good candidate to be an elder or a pastor or an overseer or a bishop. (laughs) Clearly, something going on in his marriage. See, marriage, and, and I would say this applies to every single man, How a man treats his wife 
is a great barometer of a man's true character. Let me say that again for all the guys in the back. How a man treats his wife is really a perfect barometer of a man's true inner character. John Phillips says this about this verse. Marriages bring disciplines as well as delights. It is an arena where love and loyalty can be practiced, where lessons and personal relationships can be learned, where theories are tested and the crucible of experience, where limits have to be observed. A good husband is faithful to his wife, a good provider, a spiritual leader, loving his wife as Christ loved the church. One commentator wrote this about this verse. Many a wise pastor has advised potential leaders whose marriages need attention not to seek church office. Despite the fact that they are technically married, God requires the church to determine whether a potential elder's marriage is whole, healthy, and solid. Men with damaged or deficient marriages should not pursue church leadership positions thinking that others will not care or notice. They will care and they will notice. Rather than talk about how we might disagree on this, let me do this. Let me give you what this passage is absolutely not saying, and then let me give you the for sures that we can agree on of what this part of the passage is absolutely saying. When it says faithful to one wife or a one-woman man, it does not mean to exclude those who have never been married from leadership in a church. It does not mean to exclude those that are widowers, whether they're remarried or not. It does not mean that you have to be married to be an elder or a pastor of a church. It does mean, and lean in when I say this, it does mean that when we're selecting elders, when we're ordaining pastors for an overseer or a bishop, we need to keep the standard for marriage as close to ideal as possible. We don't want to get to the edge of the cliff. We're staying away from the edge of the cliff. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, we need to underscore the importance of steadfast morality and consistent fidelity, fidelity to one's spouse and marital vows. Marriage is a big deal to God. And for leaders, the hope is that we're as close to the standard as possible, the highest standard. Now, in my opinion, Do I think that someone is disqualified from being a pastor or being an elder of the church if they've been divorced? That's my opinion. But again, if we disagree with this, we don't need to go have a fist fight in the parking lot. And also, I would say this. If you've been divorced, if you've had a relationship break in some area, you don't view passages like this as, well, God's done with me. I get it, the church has made you feel that way because what the church tends to do, even though all sin is equal, we pick the pet ones out that we don't struggle with and we hone in on those and we make everybody feel like they're worse than all the others. If you're gay, that's worse than anything. In the meantime, everybody's hooked on porn and everybody's having sex and so we really need to deal with that too. Oh, well, well, you've been divorced. No, 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 God's not done with you if you're divorced. In fact, I would tell you this. The majority of people that I've seen in ministry that still preach, still run ministries and do different things like that, that have been divorced, they don't worry about what they're not called to. Instead, they allow God, they allow God to use the pain of their past, and it's the biggest thing they have to minister to people. It's incredible. 
when people allow God to use a divorce to minister to other people, using your pain for gain. So get your focus off what you want or getting your feelings hurt and start focusing instead on God's purpose for your life. Discover your purpose and make a difference. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Okay. Get in the growth track. Figure out your purpose. Start to make a difference instead of focusing on these types of things. The third thing it says is it's a man whose children believe. And that's pretty self-explanatory. In other words, if somebody's going to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer, he's accomplished in his home what he hopes to facilitate through his ministry in the church. Uh, the word child here, there's no age range for this, but it's understood that it means any child that's living underneath a pastor or elder's roof. Uh, the child word here is plural, which means that we should consider the totality of his children instead of just one. Uh, I would say as it pertains to this one, because the question arises in churches, well, if a pastor or an elder's uh, kids go nuts, they get hooked on drugs, they, uh, they uh, re- reject Jesus, for, are they disqualified? I don't think they're disqualified, but I would recommend a break so that they could work on their own household. Does that make sense to everybody? I think that's a good middle ground for what this is talking about. If, if, if I was a pastor and one of my kids was hooked on drugs, I don't know how I could minister to a church with that going on. So it would probably be wise of me uh, to take a break. Uh, perfection is not the standard here. Is everybody with me? Say amen. More on that here in just a minute. And I would also say that at this church, when it pertains to the family, we believe at this church families are called to ministry. Families are called to ministry. If I ever have a young pastor come to me and he's got a girlfriend or he's getting married or he is married, I'll say, what does your wife think about this? Because if she's not in it with you, you ain't going to be in it for long, bro. If you got kids, they got to understand they're called to this as well or they're not going to last long or they're going to be super ineffective. We just believe at this church, families are called to ministry. Uh, it's a biblical thing. In fact, I'll give you this example. It's the only one I could think of. I'm not trying to make myself look good, but it's the only one I could think of. Dinner's ready. Somebody's phone went off, and I heard a bell ring. Okay, take your pills. Okay. Um, <laughs> every time somebody's cell phone goes off, I'm gonna start saying, "Take your pills." But uh, this past Christmas was the busiest Christmas we've ever had in the church's history. Ten years, man, it's been nuts. And a lot of it had to do with the facility. A lot of meetings for that. A lot of praying for that. A lot of stress for that. Uh, plus the fact that we had four Christmas Eve services and parties for the staff and parties for the serve team and so much going on. It's already crazy at Christmas when you work for a church. And my wife and I felt kind of bad after Christmas was over because we hadn't spent a whole lot of time with the kids. And so we sat down with the kids to talk to them about how we were busy and everything. And we asked this question, and we were blown away by both of their answers. We said, what was your favorite thing about Christmas? And both of them, without hesitation, said the Christmas Eve services were our favorite thing. We absolutely loved it. We loved it. We loved coming here on Christmas Eve Eve when we couldn't get the sanctuary above 60 degrees because it was negative 22 wind chill outside. Anybody remember that? You know what I mean? No, you don't because you weren't here. Okay, thank you. (laughs) You're like, it's too cold outside. (laughs) You got free tickets to a UT game, you'd have been there if it was negative 22. Don't even get me started, people. But they loved it. They loved serving, giving up their whole Christmas Eve to serve. Families are called to ministry. Makes sense to everybody? Say amen. Families are called. The last one under this is the NSA. NASB says that you, a leader cannot be accused of disp- dissipation. In our translation, it says not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, their lives cannot be constantly drama and chaotic. Because speed of the leader, speed of the team. Show me a pastor, show me an elder 
who's got constant drama in their life, I will show you a church that has constant drama in it. Make sense, everybody? Okay, somebody with high integrity. It's once said that somebody that has high integrity doesn't have a lot of drama in their life. And I really, really think that's true. Number two, the way he leads in public. Everybody still with me? Say, I am. The scripture continues and says he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. The first one used in this category, it says not overbearing. A better translation of that is he's not self-willed. He's not arrogant. He's not self-interested. In other words, the idea is if you're going to be a leader in any facet of life, you think of others more than you think of yourself. It cannot be someone that's fiercely independent and doesn't want anything to do with people and feels like they have entitlement. A leader in a church has to be someone with a submissive spirit. Why is that? You know, I'll explain it to you this way. I've had people on church staffs before that aren't a senior pastor come to me and say, I think I want to be a senior pastor one day because if I'm a senior pastor or an elder in a church or whatever, man, I'll get to do whatever I want. And I just laugh, and I'm like, are you crazy? Right now, you're on a church staff, and the only person you answer to is your senior pastor. Guess who the senior pastor answers to? Every single person in the church. I mean, y'all don't even go to my staff when you think something's off with them. You come to me and hold me accountable for what they're doing. The higher up you go in leadership in any organization, and the church is no different, the less rights you have. If you're a good leader, the less control you have. An elder is not overbearing. He's not self-interested. In other words, the whole job of an elder, pastor, overseer is to say, number one, what does Jesus want me to do? Number two, what's best for the church? And the last thing we consider is what we want. We're thinking about other people constantly, and that is tough, y'all. See, leadership, leadership, God's way doesn't look like the world's way. I told y'all about that flow chart where Jesus is the head of the church, and then underneath is, think of it flipped. Think of it like Jesus humbled himself and laid the foundation. The elders are the framework, and so actually it's from the bottom up that we find leadership, in, in uh, where is it? Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Luke chapter 9, 48, For it is the one who is least among you who shall be the greatest. Philippians chapter 2, here's the big idea. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Dad's in here. I hope you're listening. Because you know what being a good husband and a good dad is? You don't think about yourself. You think about her and you think about them more than you think about yourself. That's what being a leader of a home is. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Christ Jesus had. So he's not overbearing. He's not self-interested. He's not quick-tempered. They know how to control their anger. There is righteous indignation. Even Jesus got angry about things. Um, You better get angry about things if you're a Christian. Uh, Murdering innocent people, uh, sinfulness in the world should make you angry. But a leader knows how to control their anger because there's a difference between righteous indignation and flying off the handle. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, One time I was counseling a couple. And uh, the husband was like, you know, I just fly off the handle when we get into arguments, but 
She never does, and I don't know how she does it. And I looked at her, and I said, how do you control your anger when you guys are fighting? She says, well, I just go clean the bathroom. And I was like, well, what does that do? And she said, well, I clean the toilet with his toothbrush, and it makes me feel better. (laughs) Did I just give somebody an idea in here? Don't be doing that. I remember one time, this was before I was a pastor, I was a, I was a, a youth leader at a church right down the road, Pine Eden. I was driving down Main Street in front of the hospital. And you know that red light in front of the hospital that turns red for no reason whatsoever, even though nobody's there? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Like the red lights here drive me nuts. After like 9 o'clock, they just should be blinking. You know what I mean? Like blinking. Why do you even have it? And so I'm sitting there, and uh, the person in front of me stops for a yellow that they could have made, and I could have made it too and broke the law. But... um. I had like a road rage incident for when we passed that light and we were going up the hill where the fountain is there on the right. I zoomed around him and gave him a dirty look. And guess what? It was one of the deacons of the church's wife. You know what I mean? Like I'm looking, I'm going, <gasps> I found her the next Sunday. and was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. Learned a hard lesson. You know what I mean? But I had some anger stuff I had to work on before I became a pastor because I didn't understand there's a time for righteous indignation, but you don't fly off the handle over somebody cutting you off or something. They're not given to drunkenness means they're not addicted to wine. This is not restricted to alcohol. Uh, This is referring to an elder not allowing any substance to control their mind or their body physically. Okay, so... So the idea is, it's not, oh, you had surgery so you can't take opiates for the pain. That's okay. But if you take opiates for pleasure or you're addicted to them, you're disqualified as a leader. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. I use the opiate thing because, you know, we've made this kind of a legalistic thing in the last 50 years in the church, and we're like, oh, don't touch beer, don't touch alcohol, which we can have a discussion about another day about whether or not you can do that biblically. But, but, but the Baptist Budweiser for years has been Valium. Tons of people have been hooked on them. We take the prescription drugs like they're no problem whatsoever, and so many of us have an issue with them, and you never hear somebody deal with that. As long as you're not drinking alcohol, you're okay, but you're taking all these Valium. Does that make sense? I like that. The Baptist Budweiser is Valium. I think that's funny. They're not Valium. uh, Violent. They're not Valium. They're not violent, which means they don't have a combative spirit. They don't let their emotions control them. They're not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, One translation says they don't pursue sordid gain, which means they don't procure wealth by dishonest means. Lastly, Uh, to look at leaders, we look at the way they lead in the church. Listen to verse 8. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who opposed it. It starts in this category with hospitable. That doesn't mean that they have people over to their house all the time. It doesn't mean they let homeless people stay in their extra bedroom. That means the literal translation is you're loving of strangers. In other words, think about this in the context of the church in America and whether leaders are effective at doing this. They welcome people that are different than they are. What a quality to have as a Christian. A real leader, a real Christian, welcomes people that look different, talk different, Oh, there's so many jokes I want to tell about the Yankees in here and the Southerners in here, you know, in Crossville. All them Fairfield people versus all the local, you know what I mean? That They vote different. They still love them because they know that Jesus loves them. They're hospitable. They love what is good. They have a love for God and a love for people. They're self-controlled. 
the word here is sensible, better translated. They have sound judgment, in other words. Uh, This is actually a word exactly that's used in chapter 2 to describe older men in verse 2, to describe younger women that are being discipled by older women in verse 3. It describes younger men in verse 6, and it describes uh, the whole church in verse 12 of chapter 2. So again, Let me reiterate this. This is not just for leaders. This is for every single Christian. This test, I mean, so many of these are the fruit of the Spirit, right, is the litmus test for your maturity in the Lord. So this is is not just something that an elder or leader should look for. This is something the entire church needs to uh, pursue, being self-controlled. It says they're upright. Better translation is just. Uh, In the classical Greek, this is a word that's used to describe Jesus, and it means to be innocent like Christ. An upright man is a just man that seeks fairness for others, but rarely for himself, in other words. That's what that word means. You get the idea here? Leaders are thinking of others more. I want to make sure that you have justice in your life and, and things are fair in your life, but I'm not worried about me, just like Jesus did. So you're upright, you're just, you're holy and disciplined, you're self-controlled. Uh, It's the same word that's used for demonic possession. It means you have possession or dominion over yourself. And then it says they hold firmly to the message. And that really uh, ends the attributes that elders are supposed to have and kind of creates, I was thinking about this this week, this list of things creates like this leadership sandwich, you know, like blameless, the first word is a slice of bread. And then holding firmly to the message is the last slice of bread and Everything in between is like the meat and the lettuce and tomato. And I don't know, I like sandwiches. Anybody in here like sandwiches? Y'all like, sa- like sandwiches? Everybody raise your hand. Okay. Y'all watch Friends? Anybody in here watch Friends? Anybody know who on Friends like sandwiches? Who's addicted to Joey? Like sandwiches? Y'all remember, uh, I'm getting way too far in the weeds here. I got to hurry. But remember the, the Thanksgiving episode where Ross made a sandwich out of leftover turkey and somebody ate it? And remember what he said? My sandwich. Like sandwiches, man. Y'all like sandwiches? Okay, good. It, say this with me. Five, five dollar, five dollar foot. Like, yeah, there we go. We like sandwiches, you know. Go to Nixon's Deli in Knoxville. It's like a local spot. I take my son. I'm teaching him right. I'm discipling him well. We go to Nixon's Deli and we get a, a Reuben, turkey Reuben on rye. Whew, make you slap your mama for not feeding it to you before, you know what I mean? Sorry. Last thing it says is encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Calvin once said that a pastor, an elder, a leader needs two voices. One voice is to gather the sheep and the other is to drive away the wolves and the thieves. This is the idea here. I'm going to close with this. We look at this list and it's very obvious that there is not a human being, a leader, a pastor on earth that can live up to these qualifications perfectly. Do you all agree with that? Everybody say amen, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, you couldn't hold all these. Go ahead. You couldn't hold all these. There's no way. Now look at the person on the other side of you and say, you definitely couldn't do it. You know, like, <laughs> I've seen your Instagram. Like, you ain't no way. You're crazy, man. I've seen you ran on Facebook. These are general criteria or goals. And so when we're too rigid with this list, it means that no one is qualified to be a leader. What drives me crazy about the church is, without a doubt, there's different viewpoints on certain things that we've went over, like being divorced and alcohol and different things like that. But 99% of what I said in my sermon, we all agree on if we're Christians. 
But the church tends to focus on the 1% and fuss and fight and write books and be ridiculous about the things that we disagree on. Instead, we need to recognize that we're trying to attain these attributes and qualify ourselves as leaders in the church, as leaders of our home, as people in the community of believers. I would encourage you. See, nobody can live up to these, right? And, and I understand there's people sitting under the sound of my voice in here right now, people watching online probably definitely because you won't dawn the doors of a church ever again, you've told yourself. You've been let down by a leader in the past. You've been let down. You've had a pastor say something to you. A small group leader hurts you greatly. You're betrayed. We've seen it. Like when I went through this list of things, I couldn't help but think of like high-profile pastors around the world that have fallen because one of these qualifications is missing. One of these attributes is missing in their life. So I get it. We, we have all kinds of church hurt and Gosh, we've seen denominations come out with scandal after scandal. They were hiding this. They were keeping this from the public. And it's, it's caused us all to have a lot of distrust in the church. So my encouragement to you this weekend is twofold. Number one, if you've been hurt by the church, and as a result said to yourself, I'm never going to be involved in church again because I've been down that route, because a person has let you down, a pastor fell that you were under, first I would encourage you to really take inventory. Because with so many people, what I see is they go from honoring a pastor or leader to worshiping. We worship one person, and his name is Jesus. You don't worship Josh Cardwell. You don't worship Pastor Brandon. You don't worship anybody on staff or any of the elders. We are going to let you down. I'm going to say stuff you don't agree with and you don't like. I've been married to my wife for 23 years. Guess what? I say stuff to her that she doesn't like and she doesn't agree with. So stop thinking that we're going to be perfect. Yes, we should honor the office of pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, and the church has not done a good job of honoring that position, but I get it in a lot of ways like I told you last week, there's a lot of posers that are pastors. There's a lot of pastors, elders that aren't deserving of honor. Don't worship a pastor. Secondly, I would encourage you, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Listen, if you've been in church more than five minutes, you're going to get hurt. You're going to disagree. You're going to have things that bother you. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, Absolutely. And what drives me nuts when that happens to people is most of them say things like, I'm never going to go to church again. I'm never going to follow Jesus again. Christianity is not for me. Don't ever, don't ever judge Jesus based off what his followers have done. He's perfect. He's perfect, y'all. We're not. Most of the time when you find people are deconstructing their faith, when people are walking away from church, when people want nothing to do with the gospel or Jesus, if you really listen, most of the time their argument is, well, the people that follow Jesus are just so messed up, I just can't get my mind around it. 
We're not the standard of perfection. Pastors and leaders aren't the standard of perfection. Jesus is the only one that meets every one of these qualifications perfectly. So if you got hurt, I get it. I've been hurt. Church is a crazy place filled with crazy people. We're messed up. You ain't never going to find a perfect church. Amen, Rev Church? Listen to me. If you find the perfect church, don't go there because you're going to screw it all up. Seriously, you're going to mess it up. Instead, put your focus and your worship on him. Then you'll be able to make it. And you'll mature as a believer in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. What a weird passage for us to study. But, you know, somebody said in the lobby to me, it's a weird passage, but you're either hungry for the Word of God or you're not. And uh, if we want to pick and choose what we want to study, then uh, something's off in us. So, God, I thank you for Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, that teaches us leadership is important. I pray for every single one of us that we would pursue these attributes and these qualities in our life so that we can get closer to you and love more people into the kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.